Hi, everybody. It's Bean. Welcome to an all-new Great Moments in Weed History. On this Weeds episode, we're going to break free from the stifling constraints of square society, man, and, like, totally dig the universal, experiential cannabis vibe as disseminated by the groovy luminaries of the Beat Generation. Emerging in the 1950s, a time of severe conformity in the United States, the so-called beatnik subculture pushed back against corporatism and consumerism in favor of a contemplatively nonconformist lifestyle focused on art, poetry, jazz, and grass. The small circle of young writers at the core of this movement, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, William Burroughs, and Neil Cassidy, they were all heavily influenced by the improvisation, illumination, and imagination that they found in cannabis. Among their most acclaimed and lasting works are, of course, Jack Kerouac's generation-defining novel, On the Road, and Allen Ginsberg's epic poem, Howl. You might also know the beatniks from all the times they're referenced on The Simpsons. The miniature version of the A-bomb, the government built it in the 50s to drop on beatniks. Radiant, cool, crazy nightmares in New Jersey nowhere. Put this in your pipe and smoke it. Well, I'm afraid young Ned is unusually aggressive, but I can't seem to find a cause for it. Hey, hey, get down from that bookshelf, please. Most of those books haven't been discredited yet. Would you please tell your son to stop? We can't do it, man. That's discipline. That's like telling Gene Krupa not to go boom, boom, ba, 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 boom, boom, ba, 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 boom, 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 ba, 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 boom, boom. We don't believe in rules like we gave them up when we started living like freaky beatniks. Now, you don't believe in rules, yet you want to control Ned's anger. Yeah, you've got to help us, Doc. We've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. My guest this weed is Martin Torloff, author of Bop, Apocalypse, Jazz, Race, The Beats, and Drugs. I love this book, along with his previous book, Can't Find My Way Home, America in the Great Stoned Age. In the episode, we discuss how central cannabis was as a creative tool for the beats as they sought to bust through the conventions of both literature and society. For example... Here's an excerpt from an October 1950 letter that Kerouac sent to Cassidy recalling how smoking tea, as they called cannabis, while on a trip to Mexico together, had allowed them to cross cultural divides while accessing new modes of consciousness. Did you ever see such a bomber as our boy Gregor rolled? Kerouac wrote. And his mother's backyard tea garden way out in the desert. Here we were, smack dab at once in the middle of another culture, talking in separate languages and how those guys dug us, too. High? I was so high I've never been so high. Woo! Finally, yes, he wrote the word woo, everyone. <laughs> in a letter. Finally, there came absolutely, utterly the highest moment of my life. Now I'm myself. Not anybody else since then. Unfortunately, eight years after receiving that letter, Neil Cassidy offered to share his stash with an undercover cop at a nightclub, resulting in a two-year prison sentence. A few years after that, his fellow beat, the poet Allen Ginsberg, would form Lamar, 
the earliest known cannabis legalization organization in the United States. So how's that for a great moment in weed history? Now, if you can dig it, I gotta say, personally, this weeds episode is very close to my heart. I can remember falling under the spell of the Beats as a teenager, perhaps not coincidentally, right around the same time I discovered weed. Heady days, let me tell you. Something about their defiance of convention, their anti-consumerism, their drive to live and express themselves in the moment, well, it all really appealed to me. And still does. As a nerdy guy who loves weed, jazz, and writing, I think that might have been my time. Oh, to jump in the old hotbox time machine and head back to some beat crash pad and smoke tea while listening to freaky freeform poetry overlaid upon a Lester Young sax solo. Well, until that's a possibility, I'll have to leave you with the words of lesser known but much loved beat poet Gregory Corso, who wrote, pot is the needle in God's haystack. I remember reading those words so, so, so early in my weed journey and nodding my head and snapping my fingers and stroking my chin where a beard wouldn't yet grow. And I gotta say, everything I've learned about this plant since then has only confirmed the truth in that statement. Pot is the needle in God's haystack. So what a treat it was to talk with Martin Torloff about the Beats, Stoned Adventures, their lasting impact on literature, and the way their exploration of the history and culture of cannabis grew to include a concerted effort to expose the war on drugs as a crime against humanity and ultimately to plant the seeds of cannabis legalization. Now, before we dim the lights, break out the bongos and roll up some bombers of tea, I've got to, like, pass the basket, man, and ask all of you anti-consumerist, non-conformists to please all get in a single-file line and hand over some of those filthy, diseased, green-dollar bills in your pockets, man. Just go to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com, and you can join us on Patreon, where you'll get the video version of this podcast, plus special bonuses like the secret sesh and my occasional solo stoned ramblings. You'll also join really the coolest online community out there, and you can get it all for just $1 a month, or you can put five on it, or for just a little more, you can get a signed copy of my book, How to Smoke Pot properly and i will mail it right to your door whatever you can do as we pass the digital basket around i thank you just for supporting this show for getting high on history with all of us and if you can hip a friend to this groovy scene we've got going all the better okay let's get into our interview with martin torloff but Oh, man, I'm like getting a vibration through the ether that someone out there, some hip cat or kitten or non-binary cat-like person, (laughs) I don't know, Uh, one of you groovy bootniks out there listening to this uh, is all in on the subject, but not yet as teed up on reefer sticks as you'd like to be, well, my friends... You know what you have to do, and that is to just simply hit pause and 
you can use that time at your leisure to roll yourself up some tea or to split a blunt or to pack a bong or to endabulate a dab or to make some weed brownies and uh, crash out in your pad and get ready for a really fascinating discussion because the one thing I can assure you, hepsters out there, is that when you are lit as you'd like to be and you hit on pause, well, we'll all be ready right along with you for another great moment in weed history. Martin, welcome to Great Moments in Weed History. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. I'm a big fan of your work. I've read your books. I'm very excited to have this conversation with you. Certainly a theme in your work has been looking at drugs and culture and society. And I'm just wondering how that came to be such a, a important through line in your work. In my work, I've always looked for different ways to tell the American story. And this is a really great one that really hasn't been utilized a lot. When I set out to do this, there were always books about different aspects of it, different moments, different scenes, but very few people had come along and kind of contextualized the whole narrative into a linear story about how drugs shaped American culture. And they did shape it quite profoundly. My own personal connection to it is I write about it uh, in Bop Apocalypse. The first night I smoked marijuana, you know, my older sister turned me on. It was November 4th, 1968, uh, the night Richard Nixon was elected president. He didn't exactly get in at the optimal moment as a weed smoker. Well, you know, uh, that's... And in a funny kind of way, it was, you know, my parents were upstairs in the den. My sister had this like pad, you know, she was four years older and she brought the 60s all down to the basement of my parents' house. You know, I mean, she was the first person on the block, you know, to have the Bob Dylan album, the Beatles album, et cetera, et cetera. You know, marijuana was an important part of that package. And she was very, very thorough about making sure that I would get good and high that first time. Um, and I did. And when she recognized it, she said, all right, go over there and put your head between those speakers. And she put on Blue Jay Way from the Beatles Magical Mystery Tour album. And I have to say, from the moment that organ faded in, my life changed and was really never really the same. So I lived through all of the different drug vogues and phases that my generation went through. And, you know, at the age of 37, I kind of crashed and burned on alcohol and cocaine and basically decided to stop everything and, you know, change my life. And in doing so, I started like really thinking about the impact that, you know, drugs had had on me personally. There were things about it that were very positive experiences with pot and psychedelics that had opened me in very important ways. 
And there were things about, you know, the use of other drugs that damaged me, that, you know, shut me down, that closed me off. So I wanted to kind of put that in some kind of perspective. And I wanted to understand how the marijuana had gotten down to, you know, a middle class basement in the fall of 1968. And then it, it just grew from there. It was like, well, I want to understand the impact that it had on my generation. And then it grew even bigger into, I want to understand the impact that it has on the whole freaking nation. And it set me off on this odyssey of like a decade of studying and traveling and talking to people. I, you know, I did like 350 interviews for it. This is for the book Can't Find My Way Home, correct? Yes, that was the book that came out first. I mean, the second book, Bop Apocalypse, was the prequel. We've covered in an episode of this podcast some of the connections between cannabis and jazz music, uh, but I certainly want to want to examine that with a lot of depth with you, but I thought given that we're great moments in weed history, there is a, a really seminal, really great moment that you uh, describe in your book that bridges these two worlds of jazz and uh, the beats that we really want to focus on today. And that is, uh, this really kind of blew my mind, the uh, passing of the torch, so to speak, from from Lester Young to Jack Kerouac. And- ah, that's so great that you picked up on that and really like got it that what a what a what a moment that was. It's really interesting when you go back and look at like the very beginnings of marijuana in this country. Marijuana arrives in New Orleans right at the same time that jazz begins to coalesce so that there was one thing always influencing the other. And yes, it's rooted in the African-American jazz culture of that time and, and, and guys like Louis Armstrong. I mean, there were obviously white people interested in it and, you know, because they love jazz. And so it became this small kind of underground community later to become known as Vipers. Like we're talking about like the 19 teens and the 1920s now. This is before the swing era and marijuana the reefer culture. And so, you know, that's when Louis Armstrong picked up on it. And what I did was I looked at how it spread, how it proliferated, the impact that it had on the music, the impact that it had on relations between white people and black people, for, because from the very beginning, it was a nexus of interracial experience. One of the few in happening in American society. The marginalization of cannabis, whether it's legal when, when when the criminal justice system gets involved or just cultural, that is the reason that this becomes a place where different cultures, different races, different walks of life uh, can interact because so much of American society is segregated at the same time. Exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, the, the, the jazz uh, critic Nat Hentoff wrote about how the jazz of that era at that time in New Orleans was maybe the only place where white people and blacks people could mix casually, you know, um, in a way that um, allowed a true exchange of who these people really were and what they were about and to kind of 
form a consensus of values based around that exchange. And marijuana was there at the center of that. It was part of that, you know, that nexus. But what I did was I followed it, the proliferation. And it really, it's very obvious what happens. You can follow it up the river with the jazz musicians after the closing of Storyville in New Orleans. And it goes up to Chicago on those great, like, riverboat steamers. And, you know, the musicians played there. And then they went to Chicago. They brought the weed with them. And then from there, it kind of moves out. And it goes down to Kansas City, which became like a very important jazz scene in the 1930s. It goes out to Los Angeles. And it comes across to New York, to Harlem. And that's really where the reefer culture of this country begins in those places. A place like the Savoy Ballroom in Harlem was really unlike any place else in the country. I mean, it was a place where white people and black people came to dance together to the music that they loved. You know, by that time it was swing. I mean, Harlem was a place that white people, adventurous white people, of a certain kind of mindset and sensibility really wanted to go because they knew that something was going on there. And it wasn't just the music and it wasn't just the reefer. It was a, a kind of vision of how people could be together, really. Um, and that was precisely what Harry Anslinger hated so much, what he wanted to stop. You know, whatever whatever his feelings were about jazz and whatever his feelings were about reefer, as it was known at the time, marijuana, what he really was against was the kind of interracial casualness of it. Just these people being together. And one of the one of the ways, you know, that he always crusaded against marijuana was, you know, to point out the dangers of white people, you know, mixing with black people, especially in the form of black jazz musicians, how they were going to corrupt white people, especially how they were going to corrupt white women. So anyway, getting back to the whole like frame of Jack Kerouac meeting Lester Young, the, the impact of marijuana on the different jazz musicians, it, it varied from musician to musician, you know. There's no doubt that uh, it had a, a powerful impact on the music. It allowed musicians to experiment with space and time and melody. And it also had an impact on the personalities that were, you know, that had become like the, the really important players in the jazz scene. One of them, of course, was Louis Armstrong. And, you know, the, the thing about marijuana that a lot of people um, don't really get is that, yes, there's a certain set of factors and um, feelings and experiences that are kind of universal that happens when people smoke cannabis. But the, its impact on different personalities will be different. It has a way of kind of amplifying aspects of the person's personality. 
And whereas someone like Louis Armstrong, who was very genial and just radiated a sense of joy, it took that aspect of him and it amplified it. Lester Young was a very different character. He was very soft, sweet man who had been really damaged by the racism of the era. And he was a brilliant, brilliant saxophonist. And what what the what the pot did was it pulled him into himself. As a result, his approach to music was very inward. And not only that, but the pot was a part of his whole self-invention as this like unbelievable character, as the man who literally invented the word cool, who had an impact on fashion, you know, I mean, uh, with pork pie hats and um, who really kind of pioneered the whole use of, you know, slang, um, you know, jive that was really, really inventive. Um, so he had like a, a, a an impact that w- went far beyond the music that he played. So by the time Kerouac met him in like le- the late thirties, he had like reached the peak as one of the most famous and eccentric jazz musicians in America. Jack Kerouac was a young man. I mean, he was at that time um, briefly uh, a student at Columbia, and that's how he met Allen Ginsberg and the others. But from the get-go, he was fascinated by jazz. And he really started becoming interested in writing about it. And this was way, way before, you know, he ever tried to write a novel or anything else. So he was plugged into the jazz scene. And um, one of his buddies worked down at a really cool record shop in the in the village where they had all the latest sides and he would hang out there. And one night, lo and behold, Lester Young walks in. And of course, Jack knows who he is. And, you know, at the time, a small circle of jazz musicians were starting to gather, you know, uptown in Harlem to explore the new, a new aesthetic in jazz, which would become known as bebop. You know, and they all played in this place. And Prez, that was his name, his nickname, Lester Young, the president of the tenors. And that name was given to him by Billie Holiday. They were very, very close. And he was on his way up there. And Kerouac said, can I come with you? And Prez said, yeah, yeah, you could come. So they got in a cab and somewhere between the West Village and reaching Harlem, Lester turned Jack onto marijuana. And that experience changed his life as readily, you know, as I described how it changed mine, because he walked into that place and, you know, experienced that music, you know, in a way that he never had before. And that was the beginning of his whole notion of, wow, how could I write the way these guys are playing music? Well, a lot of people have asked me, why did I write that book or any book? All the stories I wrote were true because I believed in what I saw. I was traveling west one time at the junction of the state line of Colorado. It's arid western one, 
In the state line of poor Utah, I saw in the clouds huge and massed above the fiery golden desert of Evenfall, the great image of God with forefinger pointed straight at me through halos and rolls and gold folds that were like the existence of a gleaming spear in his right hand which saith, Come on, boy, go thou across the ground. Go moan for man. Go moan. Go groan. Go groan alone. Go roll your bones alone. Go thou and be little beneath my sight. Go thou and be minute as seed in the pod. Go thou, go thou, die hence. And of this world report you well and truly. Anyway, I wrote the book because we're all going to die. And that is the seed of the whole beat generation, in a way. That, that idea, that concept, that, that aesthetic of, is it possible that I can, you know, that I can write prose like Lester Young is blowing? That I could write poetry like Charlie Parker is playing? And, and that was the beginning of his odyssey towards that. Of course, he would bring Allen Ginsberg in and, you know, they would explore it together. So that 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 is that really is a great moment in weed history. All right. Well, I'm going to get my stamp out. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's an obvious one. I'm going to stamp that one. And, you know, just to, to reiterate the point that, you know, at this time, Jack Kerouac is, is a, just an anonymous young person. You know, he's not the author of On the Road. He's no, not- that is years, years ahead. I think that speaks to the moment as well about this underground culture. Here is an upper echelon jazz musician, you know, who by all accounts, you know, has had every reason to be wary of white people. And yet he's willing to bring a a young white guy that he just met into sort of the uh, holy of holies of this weed scene. And it just speaks to what I think we all feel as part of this culture, certainly uh, myself, the people listening, that this is just something that you want to share and that you want to experience with other people. And that's so counter to what you would consider the mainstream society of the of the time that is legally and socially doing everything it can to divide people up and and keep them apart as jack kerouac asks this question of himself how can i uh integrate some of these ideas from these jazz musicians into uh the literary form we get into things like improvisation free verse, breaking with certain structures and sort of following these lines of thought wherever they go and and, and not being constrained uh, to the forms of the past. And I think that there's, you know, both science and anecdotal evidence to show that cannabis can really enhance uh, certainly improvisation. And, and is that something that you found uh, in your more broad uh, assessment of all this, absolutely, you know, absolutely, improvisation and 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 marijuana are very very closely associated at that time. You know, look, the thing about the early beats, you know, it was a very small scene. It was Jack and Alan. Eventually, William Burroughs kind of meandered in. Eventually, Neil Cassidy would 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 show up. It wasn't a big scene. It was a small group of people who congregated together on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. What differentiated the Beats as 
these people really became curious about the history, the prehistory of these substances, because you really couldn't find information about marijuana in, you know, in libraries. It just didn't exist, you know, and, and so, so then Alan, you know, was the one who started to, you know, f- discover that, oh my God, there are these poets like Baudelaire who smoked hashish and the, and these poets had their own kind of aesthetic, really. They, they had their own ideas about it. And, and so that set Alan off onto his own kind of exploration of understanding you know, where it came from and that, yes, I mean, it, it had a role along with art that went, that went, that, that went back to the previous century. And then from there, he began to understand that it went back to antiquity. And that was like a revelation to him. That was the beginning of his really lifelong attempt to compile knowledge and information about it that had never really been available before. And the thing about Alan and the Beats is that they began to kind of look at it from the standpoint of their lifestyle, their consciousness, their culture, and their literary aesthetic. I mean, I would have to say that another great moment in weed history is the first time Allen Ginsberg smokes marijuana. Yeah, take me there. You know, he was interested in in it for a long time before he smoked it. And he could never find any. I mean, it was really hard to find. And he finally scored some from some seaman, you know, who had brought it back on a ship. Um, And he and his buddy went out and they smoked it. And they were in a car driving around on the Upper West Side. And he was ripped out of his mind. And all of a sudden he realized like, oh my God, we got to park this car. I I don't want to, I can't be in this car. You know, it's just, you know how people get like when suddenly they're like freaked out about something, like the first time they smoke pot and he was freaked out. And then he got out of the park, the car, he got out of it. And he realized that he was totally lost and he wandered into like a small little uh, soda shop on the Upper West Side, and he ordered a black and white sundae. And he sat down and proceeded to eat this sundae. And he, he spoke about it for the rest of his life, about you know how important that moment was to him. Because, I mean, look, someone stoned for the first time they get the munchies i don't have to like explain that kind of attraction we're a pretty hip crowd here on this podcast (laughs) and so he began to understand how it could open the senses it wasn't only about opening the mind and consciousness it was also about opening the senses and there's there's a there's a sort of similar story of 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 him going to the museum for uh, an exhibit of Cezanne paintings correct yes another another big moment for him he gets stoned he walks in and he's looking at Cezanne's paintings and he ha- he has a sensation of how the bright colors are coming towards him and the darker colors are receding and that was another big moment for him because it it started him thinking about how marijuana kind of 
also exemplified what he would come to know come to know in, in Buddhism as sensory space, Maya sensory space, of how you know, and so and and that for him would take on a spiritual connection. But aesthetically, he began to realize that you could put different things together in a way that was completely new. And he began to think about, well, how can I do that with words? And he he started thinking about how he could create with poetry what he had perceived in Cezanne's paintings that day. And that, if you look at his breakthrough poem, Howl, it's all over the place. Backyard green tree cemetery dawns. Wine drunkenness over the rooftops. Storefront burrows a tea head joyride neon blinking traffic light. You know, you described as you began this journey uh, as a as a historian and a researcher and an author that, wow, so much of this story is unwritten or obscured or has been uh, memory hold or or denied in these official sources. And that's when when you were starting. I continuing to do this podcast today. A big part of it is wanting to recover um a history that has been obscured, but going back to um, when Allen Ginsberg is having these early cannabis experiences, there's no internet, there's no uh, counter narrative. And one thing that I find fascinating is as he begins to explore history through this lens of drugs, it leads him to question the official story of everything. I'm going to paraphrase, but he's saying, wow, as I realize that I've been lied to about weed, what is the military? What is our foreign policy? Who are these politicians? And uh, what are these institutions really doing in our society? And that sets him off on a kind of political radicalism um, that becomes a hallmark of the beats and certainly the radical politics uh, in the decades to follow. Yes, absolutely. I think that's a really good point that it really was the beginning of that for him because as he put it to me, um, you know, I was very fortunate. Alan, you know, was very supportive of my work before he passed away and, you know, allowed me, you know, to use his materials and, you know, talk to me a number of times. And the way he put it was like, once you, change your brain with a substance and started understanding that things weren't as they seem, that there was no kind of like fixed reality um, that, you know, and that, that, and that, that, and that, that could change. Um, He really began to like extrapolate and question and, and, and really the thing that was, at the, at the beginning of it was how these really experiences that he was having, that he was 
thinking were so like important to him and positive. Um, and he would like then hear like, you know, what Harry Anslinger was putting out from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. You know, this was the era of reefer madness and all of that. And it would he, he just he, he couldn't believe it. He just he just like couldn't get how how those the disconnect between those two realities. And, it, and that began him thinking about why, you know, why, why, why would something like this be so threatening to the establishment? And yes, it became very political for him. And Allen Ginsberg, in essence, is one of the earliest, um, certainly organized public voices against this war on marijuana. I believe he he started the first uh, legalization organization in the United States. Is that correct? He yes, he did. It was called Lamar. He started it with Ed Sanders, and this is like you know, like the early to mid 60s when it was dangerous to do something like that. Alan was passionate about it. I mean, he wrote Harry Anslinger like a really, really intense letter, like attacking his entire campaign against marijuana. And this was at a time when people just didn't do something like that. And Anslinger passed it on to the FBI. Later years with the Al Freedom of Information Act, Alan, you know, began to understand that, you know, that letter like didn't do him any favors. <laughs> no, I, I doubt it changed Harry Anslinger's mind much to hear from a, 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 a wild, uh, a wild, sexual, drugged up beatnik. And uh, yeah, if you've ever had that experience, you know, and and thankfully some of our younger listeners, you know, are coming up in a post-prohibition world uh, where they live. But if you've ever had that experience of getting high when you're a young person and trying to call to have a pizza ordered and thinking, oh, my God, they're going to uh, tell the FBI that I sound stoned on the phone. Well, if you write a letter to Harry Anslinger, uh, you know, that very much uh, will happen. Um, and I think another important point is like so, you know, we talk on this show, so many cannabis activists are formed by either themselves uh, being arrested, facing the consequences of this oppressive racist system or uh, having it uh, happen to somebody close to them. And that was, in fact, the case um, with Allen Ginsberg when the, sort of the, um, the inspiration for a lot of the beat literature uh, was arrested himself, Neil Cassidy, correct? Yeah, Neil Cassidy got Alan never got busted, which is quite amazing when you think about it, because there were guys, you know, d uh, police trying to set him up. Um, and that was really one of the reasons why he he started Lamar. Um, somebody had been busted. And, you know, this person, the, the, the narcotics police tried to get this person to roll over on Alan. And when Alan heard about it, he was outraged. And he said, you know, this this cannot stand. This is wrong. This is evil. This cannot stand. And he understood that the only way anything was going to change was if he put his ass on the line. And that's what he did with Lamar. I mean, it began as him 
you know, and just a small handfuls of handful of people. I mean, it's a famous photograph of him standing with a sign saying that says pot is fun, you know, in the snow flurries and flakes, you know, and in Manhattan, you know, on a frigid winter day. And that is the beginning of the movement to legalize marijuana, like that exact moment in this country. And it really speaks to, there's something in that photograph that, you know, if you're of a, if you're a weed activist of a certain age, uh, which is not that old, uh, you were just dismissed from every argument uh, before you even spoke. Like, it, it is hard in this uh, year, 2023, where half of the United States has adult use legalization, where uh, entire countries are legalizing and where the momentum certainly seems to be all going in our direction. And it's almost phrased as an inevitability um, that these laws are going to change. But that was far from the case at that time. Oh, my God. Yes. I mean, Alan, we used to talk about how in the early days when he got high, he would wander around the Columbia campus and he'd get paranoid because he knew that he was the only person on the whole campus in that state of mind. You know, and he would think about that, like how isolated and alone he was. And it would kind of freak him out, you know. And yes, it, that changed drastically uh, as time. I mean, but you have to understand, Alan, you know, in the 70s, you know, with the stoner generation of the 70s, you know, Alan was really uh, taken aback by, you know, the, the whole idea that, you know, these kids were going to smoke pot and go to the mall and, you know, and, um, you know, or sit in front of a TV endlessly, you know, and eat Dorito chips. That was not his idea of what it was for. We're integrating now capitalism and cannabis, where I think at the time there was the idea that this could be a challenge to the economic system, to the militarism in this country. Um, you know, we talked about how it really did function to disrupt segregation in a lot of ways, and I think does not get the credit that it deserves for that. I don't think it does either. I, I do think that there has been this massive legacy of the beats of their of their published works and their view of society and so you know particularly through the lens of cannabis like you know where did that go i'll tell you i'll, t- I'll tell you where it went jack kerouac published a book called on the road and that changed the game alan's howl changed the game too but that was really for people who were going to be into poetry on the road was a mass literary phenomenon And it was the story of Jack and Neil Cassidy fictionalized and the rest of them, too, you know, in the in their early years, crossing the country and their adventures. And weed is at the center of it. Jack and uh, Neil Cassidy were obsessed with it, you know, all through the 50s. They wanted to smoke it 24 seven if they could. And so it's an integral part of the of the fabric of on the road 
nobody ever expected that book to have the impact that it did. It was kind of a fluke. The reality was that it hit like a bomb because by that time, there was a whole generation of kids who were ready for it. You know, they seemed to know what it was about before they even started reading it. It was in the wind. Uh, but the kids who read the book, they wanted to smoke pot. You know, they wanted to find out what it was all about. And that was really the beginning of the counterculture in this country. Having so many more people seeking out cannabis than were previously from going from these very marginalized, very underground communities to a much uh, wider group of people had a huge effect on the cannabis trade itself. Um, and so, you know, if we go back to this jazz era, I can think of sort of two seminal uh, weed dealers who are very representative of these two worlds we're talking about. One would be uh, Mez Mesro, who we've mentioned, a, a white jazz musician uh, who uh, wrote an excellent uh, memoir of, of all of this, really the blues we discussed in another episode and was integrated into this black jazz scene, even though he was a, uh, a Jewish guy from Chicago. Um, and then Malcolm X was uh, a, uh, a, before his uh, conversion to Islam, he was known as Detroit Red, and he was selling uh, weed to jazz musicians. So I'm wondering what, but how did, how did the uh, underground, at, at this point, completely underground cannabis trade evolve along with these societal uh, changes? Mm, very, very, very good question. When Louis Armstrong started getting high as a, like a 19, 20-year-old kid in New Orleans, there was uh, a strain of marijuana called New Orleans Golden Leaf. Pot would come in from Mexico. It would come in from the Caribbean. It would come in from South America. You know, but it, it was random, you know, I mean, you know, a, some guy on one ship would bring something in terms of the large quantities of it. Uh, that didn't really start happening until like way, 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 way later. Once there was a market for it, there were people willing to serve that market. I, I mentioned New Orleans Golden Leaf because that was the strain that... Uh, uh, Louis Armstrong talked about and that Mez Mesro talks about in really the blues. It was like, you know, the primo stuff, you know, it was like the grade A weed. It was, you know, the thing. Of course, there would be a version of that in every era of cannabis from then on. But that was the first time, you know, a, that product was given a name like that. <laughs> New Orleans Golden Leaf. And the thing that made Mez so famous as a dealer. Now, Mez, Mez was a musician. I mean, he was a legitimate clarinetist, an early jazz musician in Chicago. You know, he, he had been in jail and he fell in love with the blues that this guy was playing in jail. And that set him off to become a, a jazz musician. And he gets high for the first time and... You know, and one of the most amazing uh, passages to me in really the blues is when he writes about the first time he got high and went out on stage to play music. It is just a spectacular piece of writing. And you can see in that piece of writing 
the whole uh, like roots of how musicians would kind of evolve that in, in decades and decades to come. But when he met Pops, um, it was kind of like he began to understand that this is just not um, something that we smoke. This is a way of life. They dressed a certain way. They looked a certain way. They related to each other in a certain way. And that was when he began to understand that this is a cultural package that is like beyond, beyond the music even, beyond the weed, that it's really a society of people. And that's the society that be, he began calling the Vipers. And when you talk about the Vipers as this society, you know, there's sort of a subculture within a subculture, um, jazz being a subculture, and then within it, this uh, group of cannabis enthusiasts. And we see that, um, you know, we talked about Lester Young passing the torch, meaning a joint as the torch, not cultural importance to, to Kerouac. And the beats then... Uh, became a big inspiration for the hippies and sort of the radical politics of that era. And we see it all the way up till now, where whether it's hip hop music, whether it's uh, electronic music, whether it is different um, subcultures that organize socially or politically, cannabis is always overrepresented in whatever is at the cutting edge of society and whatever is holding up a mirror to the mainstream of society and, and pointing out um, uh, how, how I, I think ill that society is and, and how these values that we now associate with cannabis, not just about the freedom of wanting to enjoy it without legal repercussion, but the idea of being inclusive, the idea of being open and the idea of um, seeing the world uh, for what it could be and not necessarily what it is right now, it runs through all of these subcultures. And so, um, you know, I, I encourage everyone uh, to uh, dig into your books. It, it is a sort of a book and a prequel. So you can start with uh, Bop Apocalypse and go chronologically into Can't Find My Way Home. Or you can start uh, with the first book and uh, work your way backwards. Before I let you go, uh, I do like to ask all of our guests um, if they're comfortable to share uh, one or several uh, great moments from your own weed history, having interviewed hundreds of people on this subject and certainly lived uh, this modern history of cannabis yourself. Is, are, are there some moments that uh, come to mind for you? Well, I'll tell you the last time I smoked pot, it was at the Rolling Stones Steel Wheels concert. Uh, so that would have been um, 89. And I was with my friend Deb and we were really, really high. And I just remember the moment at, you know, the Stones came on stage and when they did Honky Tonk Women, these two giant inflated figures of these honky-tonk 
like floozies began <laughs> in began inflating one on each side of the stage and it was so outrageous and so funny and being high at that moment like just made it even better and so my my the, my last cannabis experience was a good one that way uh we love our weed puns here so i'm going to say you went out on a high note <laughs> which is fantastic I, I mean the door is obviously still open if you want to come back um and I, I i think it's important to note you know as as we record this the rolling stones are out on tour they have a new album that's actually really great i just had a chance to listen to it um and you know it was just willie nelson's 90th birthday and i really thought that um if if uh the president of these united states was was smart and wanted to win an election uh, that would have been an incredible opportunity to legalize uh, cannabis on Willie's 90th birthday, and who would have objected? And and I, I will also like to point out that uh, Mr. Keith Richards will be turning 80 uh, on his next birthday, and uh, that would be our opportunity to legalize all drugs to end this incredibly oppressive uh racist and and damaging uh system of prohibition that we continue to live under um in the meantime we can all take some heart if we look back and i will post it on the great moments in weed history instagram page if we look at this young allen ginsburg standing in the snow holding his sign that says pot is fun as the uh as the weather is is bitter around him and he appears to be very alone and uh, very much a voice in the wilderness um, that he would look at uh, where we are now and and take a lot of uh, find a lot of joy in the fact that uh, cannabis is increasingly legal and accepted. Um, and uh, Marty, I just want to thank you once again for writing these wonderful books, for um, filling in these huge gaps in our cultural history, and uh, for spending some time with me here on Great Moments in Weed History. Thanks. I, I loved it, and um, I can't wait to hear your podcast that you do. Awesome. Thank you. All well, right, man. Comes Take out care. comes out every uh weedness day. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at great moments in weedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every weedness day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.